BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. So glad you're joining us. And thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. We try to do what we do here on Herd Tell. Turn down the noise of a very noisy news cycle. Get to the information we need and understand the times we live in just a little bit better. Discerning them with good information, not the caterwaul and not the hollering, not all the silly nonsense, not just following narratives. Not just reacting to the news, trying to understand what's really going on. I'm going to do that a couple different ways today. Um, our good science friend, Michael Seals, on the program. I'm going to talk about the real-life Armageddon mission. We sent some folks up to the asteroid, brought some stuff back. We're going to do lots of Armageddon puns from the movie, have a lot of fun with him. Also, M. Carpenter, our legal expert from Ordinary-Times.com, good attorney. She's going to explain the Donald Trump day one civil trial craziness that happened up in New York. Let's start right here, though. I want to go out to Marion, Kansas. Now, you may remember this story. This is the newspaper that was raided by the local police out there uh, a month or two ago. Let's go out to KSHB.com. Jessica McMasters is the uh, reporter here. She physically went there, did all kinds of great work. Been following her on Twitter and social media because she's really done a good job on this. But listen to this. Gideon Cody is out as the police chief at Marion, Kansas, after coming under intense criticism for a raid on the town's newspaper and his handling of documents and computer files taken in the raid. On Monday, Cody announced his resignation from the city's mayor before the city council meeting. Cody's resignation is effective immediately. Marion County Mayor David Mayfield, who confirmed the departure, did not provide any further information. Eric Meyer, the owner of the Marion County Record newspaper that was raided, and whose mother, by the way, died the day after they raided the home because she was 90-some years old and the trauma and what such of it all, said he learned of the resignation during the meeting. I didn't see it coming, Meyer said. I thought the suspension would hold off for a while, but it didn't seem to. On Thursday, KSHB 41 I-Team's Jessica McMaster reported a key witness in the case said she was directed by Cody to delete text messages. Mayfield, who for weeks has been called upon by citizens to suspend Cody, issued the suspension one day after McMaster's story. And again, this is why you follow reporters, good reporters, good local reporters. If you're following 
McMasters, which I started doing right after this story broke because she's a reporter that physically went there and was on the ground covering it. So I started following her and I followed her all through this story. You knew they were digging and digging and digging and they were going to find it. I put on Twitter back at the beginning of this. I'm like, they're going to find out all the dirty laundry about this bad cop, which is what he was. He had a history now that we know. He's been a bad cop for a long time. And we now know some of the stuff we're going to get to in just a second of why he was trying to cover for this person. Listen. Mayfield, who for weeks had been called upon by citizens to spend Cody, issued the subpoena one day after McMaster's story. Meyer said his mother, Joan Meyer, who died one day after the police raided her home, would be happy about Cody's departure. I think she'd take some pride in the fact she managed to accomplish something by getting people to pay attention to the story, Meyer said. The home of Ruth Herbel, vice mayor of Marion, was also raided. The case that sparked the raids involved the driving records of Carrie Newell, a local restaurant owner. During a late August interview, Newell told McMaster's chief Cody informed her via text message she was the victim of a crime. Let's pause. The alleged crime was the newspaper was reporting on the corruption between Cody and Newell, and Newell getting a drunk driving thing kind of swept under the rug and some other stuff. That was the alleged crime, and then here came the police chief. Listen to this. The day after Newell's interview, Newell said she no longer had the text messages between her and Cody. Ain't that convenient? Days after the interview, Newell told McMaster she deleted the text message at the chief's behest. <laughs> I didn't make mention that I didn't know the necessity of that because there was nothing inappropriate in the text message. No, he was telling you to do stuff. That's inappropriate, lady, Newell said in an interview. Newell said the chief's request came after the raids as rumors began to circulate about Newell's and Cody's relationship, which Newell insists is platonic. According to Newell, the chief didn't want people to draw conclusions about their relationship based off the text. Hmm. I kind of agreed, and so I did delete those messages against my better judgment and immediately regretted it, Newell said. Sure. While Meyer said Cody's resignation is a step forward when it comes to accountability, there are still other officials who need to be held accountable. Magistrate Judge Laura Villar signed off on Cody's warrants, which several legal experts have said provided no probable cause of a crime. Joel Ensi, Marion County attorney, refused to say whether or not he viewed the warrants prior to the raids. Enzi revoked the warrants after the raids. A little CYA action. If you don't know what that is, just Google it. Make sure your safe search is on. The wagon seemed to be circling, Meyer said. That's the newspaper owner. We'll see who, when the music stops, who's left without a chair. Officer Zach Hudlin is now the acting chief of police in Marion. I return to this story because it's important that you follow stories all the way to their conclusion. When this newspaper got raided and they took all their computers and they took all their servers and they basically tried to shut the paper down and they raided the newspaperman's home where his 90-some-year-old mother, who also worked for the paper for years and years, was and who died the next day from the trauma of it, and they raided the vice mayor's house, they were intimidating people. They were trying to be bullies. They were using their office and the law for their own means. Now we know this Cody guy has a long history of all kinds of questionable and highly suspect stuff. And how do we know about any of this? Because some local reporters went and did the work and dug into it. Otherwise, this would have continued. We talk about accountability on this program a lot. When you have bad police in a small town, as much as people yell about places like Chicago or Portland, or pick any major city you want because it fits a narrative and various 
inferior things to say that such and such places are out of control. You know where a lot of the real corruption and the real damage to people's lives are? It's in small town America. Because there's not the checks and balances. If you get a police department of only a few people and the chief's bad, you ain't got no way to fight a bit against that. It's amazing how people's perspectives get skewed. Oh, big cities are rife with crime. Sometimes that's true. Big cities do have crime problems because there's a lot of people there. There's a lot of issues there. But you get some corruption in a small town. You can really get people's lives messed up. You wind up with people dead like you do in this case. And you have an essential freedom that anybody, big town, small town, any American anywhere has. Freedom of speech, freedom of press. And those rights were violated in a small town because of very unwanted people. And unless some journalists and some newspaper people and social media and folks pushed back and fought back, nobody would have known about it and they would have got away with it. Whether you're in a small town, a mid-sized city, a suburb, biggest cities in the country, doesn't matter. Support local journalism. Support good journalism. Support people when they fight bad, powerful people like bad cops or bad district attorneys who signed off on, you know, bad warrants who should have never done it. When people try to cover up wrongdoing, fight against that. Use your social media for something other than sending cat pictures and complaining. Use it for stuff like this. This story went national on social media. Millions of Americans helped make this right. By sharing that story, share stories like that, not just bad stuff, not just stuff that tickles your priors and tickles your ears. You can make a difference in the world. And when something bad happens, like what happened in Marion, use your social media and support the reporters that are fighting against it. And the law enforcement folks that are good law enforcement that are trying to fix it. Yeah, it's Marion, Kansas. You've probably never been there. You probably can't find it on a map without Googling it. But you could make a difference. And a lot of you did because you shared a story and wouldn't let it die, and now there's some accountability. This is a good example of modern news media and social media getting something done that needed to get done. And I hope this person, they're entitled to their day in court, they're entitled to their defense, but I hope everybody involved here gets some justice, because this was wrong, and thanks to social media and good reporting, looks like we might get a good ending after all here. More Hurtel right after this. Welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, we need some law explained, so we go get our law splainer, our good friend, M. Carpenter, senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com. She is an attorney of note, although we will not hold her against it. We will not hold that against her for the purposes of this conversation because we need that expertise. How are you, my friend? Great to have you back. Thank you. Good morning. All right. So there was a lot of hoo-ha over Trump's appearance in court. One is because we actually had some visuals. And by the way, Whoever on social media did the full house opening to the judge hamming it up for the camera, brilliant. Make sure you seek that out. I'll put a link on it on the herdtel.substack.com so you can read it on the show notes. 
Overall, though, you wrote about it in Ordinary Times. We'll go through your piece a little bit. What? Just explain to folks what's going on here, because this is a trial, but it's a civil trial. The state is suing Donald Trump's businesses, which, of course, includes him, but they're really going after the businesses here. Kind of turn down the noise force a little bit, because we got to get the nomenclature right first, right? Yeah. Uh, most importantly, the kind of the low-hanging fruit, to be clear on there, is, is that it is a civil case. This is not a criminal case. There's no guilty conviction, jail time, sentencing. None of those words apply here. So that's the number one thing that um, people who are maybe not com- extremely dialed in need to understand, that he is being sued, his businesses, uh, etc., for fraud, but uh, not criminal fraud, civil civil fraud. The ramifications are pretty severe for him if he is found liable. Uh, you know, a lot of divestiture of monies, um, the inability to be a dir- board on the board of directors for any uh, corporation in New York. So there's a, still a lot of, at stake here for him. And uh, the judge actually issued a uh, motion or answered a motion for summary judgment last week in favor of the uh, attorney general's office finding that, yeah, he did commit fraud. So that part, the that fact finding part is kind of already over with. And this is just uh, more about the intent, I think, at this point, um, the issues left to try. And of course, you know, yesterday, um, <laughs> it was everybody was of the realization that this was a bench trial, meaning that there will not be a jury. This is just a trial before the judge. He will be the finder of fact and the finder of the law and the ultimate decision maker for Trump. Okay, so we, we're we in New York. We're in a civil case. You just touched on it, but I don't want to blow by it because social media is making a hash of this already. I'm guilty of it too. Because, see there, we're already using legal terminology, guilty. I, I do this too, but work, things like guilty, things like the other cases that he's facing where there's indictments and criminal charges, he's not going to be found guilty here. This is a civil trial. He will be found liable or not liable. W- work through that terminology because people throw this around in, on social media and you can kind of apply it to a layperson, but there is a really big difference in whether you're found liable, not liable as to guilt, not guilt in a criminal proceeding, right? Yes. Again, there's no no threat of jail here, as there will be threat of jail in other trials that are criminal where he has received an indictment, such as in Georgia, where he actually is facing criminal charges. And here we're, we're fighting about um, money and his uh, ability to um, continue doing business in the state of New York as he has. So this is still has serious ramifications, but we're not talking about loss of liberty here. We're talking about loss of money, loss of business status, which is still to Trump probably uh, of paramount importance. Yeah, M. Carpenter joining us. Uh, let, let's start with the the big ticket item that got everybody hot and bothered. Because <laughs> here we go again. You don't ever know what Trump's thinking. You know what he's thinking because he says it, but you don't know the thinking that went in before that. You are entitled to a jury trial in America, jurisprudence. You can waive that right and or you cannot file the proper paperwork to get the trial by jury or your speedy trial or any number of other pretrial motions that happen in a case like this. But that was the first thing that happened here was the argument over why isn't he getting a jury trial? Just break it down as best we understand it. We probably won't ever know the real answer because we've already gone to spinning it and we've already gone in front of the cameras with the story. How did it fall to you? 
How does this happen? What's the procedure? And what do you think happened here? Yeah. First of all, let me let me just say there are instances where you are not entitled to a jury trial in 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 our lovely country. Um, even in certain criminal cases, you're not entitled to a jury trial because not all criminal cases carry jail time. So, for example, in West Virginia, if you're charged with a crime that does not carry any possibility of jail time, the fine the the, the punishment's only a fine or something like that. It's still a criminal charge. But you don't get a jury. So uh, and there are also cases which we call suits in equity in which you're not entitled to a jury. A suit in equity is one in which you don't have monetary damages that you're trying to get back from the other person. These are things where, for example, you're asking a judge to issue an injunction, you know, tell my neighbors that this is my strip of land and they can't walk across it. You're not asking for money. You want the judge to sort of just make something happen. And those are suits in equity, and those are not tribal by a jury. Even if you have a lawsuit where part of it is a suit in equity and the other part is asking for damages, because part of it is a suit in equity, no jury. Even if that equity part is dropped and is no longer a part of the case, if it's there in the beginning, no jury. It's kind of a weird, weird part of our jurisprudence, but it's actually, its basis is in the Constitution. So back to this case. Uh, in New York, when there is a civil case, uh, a party can file what's called a note, note of issue, and it's sort of like a almost almost looks like a cover page. It's got all of the names of the attorneys and the parties involved, a little bit of information about what kind of a, of a, a lawsuit it is and the kind of relief being sought. And there's a box right on the front where you can say you want a jury or you want no jury. So in this case, the attorney general did file the note of issue and they said no jury. Most likely could it, it could have been because they believe this to be a suit in equity that is not suitable for a jury. Or it could have just been a preference that they didn't, they thought they could, you know, convince this one judge more easily than they could convince a, a jury. And I don't know exactly how many juries you'd get in a case like this in New York, maybe six, maybe 10, not sure. It varies by jurisdiction. So normally when that happens, the other side receives a copy, is served a copy of the note of issue, and then they have 15 days to file their own in response. And, and then they could have checked the box, jury, no jury themselves, either agreeing or disagreeing with the other side. In this case, Trump's attorneys filed no response, I believe. When I, I wrote my piece, I wasn't sure if they had filed a response but didn't check a box or they did not file any response. And now I believe the understanding is they filed no response. So he didn't ask for a jury. So, and, and you know, <laughs> everybody yesterday is, how could Trump's lawyers be so stupid? They didn't even request a jury. That's basic first-year stuff. And it is. It's very, very basic stuff. Um, and it's hard to believe that somebody that uh, is allegedly rich and, and, and as powerful as Trump can't get an attorney who would be competent enough to remember to to file such a basic form. So, you know, apparently the judge was um, not going under the, the theory, just taking granted that it was a suit in equity and there was no jury trial available because his words in court yesterday were, there's no jury because no one asked for one, not there's no jury because this is a suit in equity. So uh, Trump himself seemed very surprised that he was not having a jury. He says very unfair that he didn't didn't have a jury. Um, however, his attorney, who is being, you know, just 
smeared all over the walls yesterday on social media and in, in articles for not, you know, checking the box, Alina Haba. She says today she's, you know, she's spinning it. I saw this morning. Well, no, it's a suit in equity. You don't get a jury trial. It's under the suit, the, the statute they filed under doesn't allow for jury trials. She may be correct, but I would be very surprised if uh, if she intentionally didn't fight that issue, even if she ultimately lost it, I think um, if for no other reason than for delay, just to, to drag this out, because I don't think they were ready to go to trial or wanted to start this trial yesterday, they would have at least made an issue of it and said that, you know, when you're trying to divide, divest him, you know, this is basically a, a suit for damages and, you know, this is not a suit in equity, which it probably is and she probably would have lost, but, you know, and, and her client's attitude, obviously, that he thought he needed a jury. I would have expected that she would have requested the jury trial and then made the judge deny him one. Um, some people think it is just a, a, it was their preference to just have a judge because then if the judge finds against Trump, he has a scapegoat who's not, you know, just member members of the public. He can then blame this Democrat judge for his downfall. So it's hard to say if it was a mistake or not. A lot of people don't want to give any credit to the attorney. Obviously, it's a Trump attorney. It must be an idiot. They just didn't do their job. Um, this lady in particular, uh, some 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 commentary I've found distasteful is that he only hired her because she's pretty and, you know, kind of uh, denigrating her as a woman and saying that she's uh, just eye candy and not a good attorney. She may not be a good attorney, but it doesn't have anything to do with being eye candy. <laughs> so I'm I, I don't know if it was a mistake or if it was strategy, but whatever it was, no one seemed to have informed Trump of, of what happened. I think M. Carpenter joining us. I, I think there's two parts to this. I think there's the strategy legally, and then there's the strategy politically. Trump doesn't have a clue what the legalities of this are. That's clear. So he's just, and he doesn't really understand political strategy either. He just does what feels right to him, and it hits his base just right, and it all works out. I think he wants to be able to just denigrate the one judge, but I do think the attorneys look civil this kind of fraud cases are very very complex there's a lot the witness list for this thing is very long i'm sure the lawyers there's some of us like we've got a complex case let's get it in front of a judge maybe they've made some mistakes we can get some of this thrown out on technicalities just because of how complicated it is there's a, it's a witness heavy case so you can discredit witnesses and do a lot of technical lawyering thing as part of this case. I think the lawyers are okay with it from that point of view. I think Trump's okay with it because he can blame one judge who they can now dig into their background and find out who he voted for and blah, 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 blah. And they can just denigrate and demonize one person, which is his standard operating procedure is everybody's out to get me. And that fits a lot better when it's one person than 12 people. But those are just my two thoughts from the outside, not knowing all the legalities of it. Yeah, it, that's definitely a, a, a potential truth here behind all of this. 
another thing that I noted in my piece yesterday that I just wanted to point out is that they were not surprised yesterday morning. Um, they didn't walk into that courtroom expecting to see the jury. Trump may have. Who knows? But his attorneys knew better. Uh, they didn't come to court expecting a jury. There's a lot of lead up if you're having a jury trial. I know New York is a bigger jurisdiction than, you know, small town West Virginia where I've practiced. But calling in a jury is a big undertaking. And, you know, there's usually some pre-work that goes into that. Um, usually you get some information about who the jury pool is to prep, even if it's just demographic information or just even we're going to bring in a hundred jurors to pick from. Do you think that's enough? So, um, and, and also just verification that, hey, are we still going to trial Monday before I call in all these jurors? So at some point there would have been some something alerting his attorneys that there was not going to be any jury there. So it, this was not a last minute thing. So if it was a mistake, they would have probably had time to try to correct that if it was a mistake or they could have it could have still been a mistake. And then they're like, well. Let's just pretend that's what we intended to do because if we file something at this late time, we we look incompetent. Um, but the fact that they didn't file any form, not just that they didn't check a box, but that they did not respond with a form, a notice of issue, a note of issue at all, is a little suspect to me. That that sounds more like an omission um, to me. And maybe it was an omission, but then they thought after the fact, well, we don't need a jury anyway. Uh, I definitely, though, if I was uh, if I was those, if I were those attorneys, I wanted in writing in my file somewhere from my client that we discussed why we are not asking for a jury, because that could be significant. Now, is this an appealable issue? Probably not. It's not something I think that he can ultimately use as a as a way to get out of this if it does not go his way in the end, which we'll find out in a few months. Is this, is this trial is expected to run until December, as I guess they don't have better things to do than take a three-month trial in New York City or in New York. So uh, we'll see what happens. But, you know, I wonder how long before Trump takes his attorney and throws her under the nearest bus because we know that's what he does. We know he doesn't like to pay his attorneys. We know he doesn't like, uh, doesn't uh, take their advice if, he, if they don't tell him what he wants to hear. And it's probably just a matter of time before the people sitting next to him in that courtroom feel a little taste of that themselves. Let's talk about that on a practical level, though. M. Carpenter, attorney, senior editor, Ordinary Times with me. Here's the thing. Because what you just said, he's going to throw them under the bus. We already know in the documents case, he's already had lawyers, you know, remove themselves from the case because they're like, hey, he just he doesn't listen to us. He lies. He doesn't give us information. We can't have anything to do with this. He has multiple lawyers now that have been sanctioned on his behest on various things on a practical level. Because you know, the civil case is very different than the criminal indictments he's facing. But there's a couple things that will carry over how his lawyers conduct himself, how he conducts himself. He undercuts his lawyers. He, the idea that you would go into a courtroom unprepared and not understanding what kind of a procedure you're having, even if you know nothing, that means you didn't, you know, there's no way a normal client lawyer doesn't go, we're going to go in here. This is what's going to happen. The judge is going to say that like, that's just basic lawyer 101. Like public defenders do that when they have a five minute thing, right? You, here's our hearing. Here's what we're doing. We're going to say this. You're going to not say anything and not look at anybody. I'm going to do all the talking and we're going to leave. He does the gaggle right after, which is a, 
you know, uh, where he just sits there and denigrates the judge, which is another lawyer nightmare. And you just mentioned something else, and I don't think we should skip over it. There's all these other trials going. He's already down to his seat, and no disrespect to them. I'm sure they're nice people to their friends, families, and puppies, but he's down to kind of his C-level lawyers. He's down to whoever he can get now. He's not getting top-quality legal representation, and they have multiple major legal actions going at the same time. People only have so much bandwidth. There's just on a practical level, as an attorney, you can only do so much at once, and Trump is a lot, and he undercuts you, and you can't trust him. I don't know how he manages, even if you were going to give him every benefit of the doubt, how does he manage an effective defense when he won't shut up, he undercuts his own attorneys, and he's got all these different trials going at once because of his own behavior and choices? You can't. You can't. And I and that's why, you know, what I was saying yesterday in my piece, I don't think he understands, or maybe he understands, He, I don't think he can fathom the worst case scenario actually coming true for him. And I think it's to, to some extent the, his attorneys can't either. It seems like they all believe they're in some sort of like reality TV political drama that they can just keep, you know, having all of these made for TV moments and these very indignant press conferences and putting out these statements and these attorneys getting caught up in the, this orbit uh, and, ultimately going down with him in some ways, you know, with, with the, you know, his former attorneys that are now facing indictment because of their associations with him. And, you know, I, I just doesn't, these are not like to use a phrase you use a lot. These are not serious people. These people are, you know, it's a circus and they're, they're an act in the circus. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just hard to imagine you know, bankrupt. Well, it's not hard to imagine bankrupt Donald Trump because bankrupt all the time, but a personally bankrupt Donald Trump who's lost all of his money and assets or it, or a, an imprisoned Donald Trump or imprisoned attorneys. And I, I think they just can't imagine that, it, that that's like a, a seriously possible outcome here. And so they just dial up the drama. They just dive head first and they just get in, into this craziness that we're seeing that happens when you're in Trump's orbit. Um, so I don't think they're paying the level of attention and the professional diligence that would be expected of an attorney in a normal situation. They're as caught up in the crazy as Trump himself. That's the way it looks to me. Yeah. And the court there for folks that have never had to be in some kind of a judicial proceeding in a courtroom, whether it's, you know, local small claims court magistrate, whatever, all the way up to, you know, you've argued for court of appeals type level. You denigrated yourself a small time lawyer. You're better than that, though. Don't fool people. She's good, folks. She's just not your attorney. That whatever level of the judicial system you in, it just doesn't work. You can't BS your way through it. And in most cases with most judges and most serious courts, the more you try to BS it, the worse it ends up coming out for you. It's just one of those universal truths in our system of like, if you don't come in there and act serious, the level of the weight of it coming on you gets exponentially worse in a hurry for you not taking it seriously. Regardless of whether you're guilty or innocent or liable or not liable, if you go in there goofing off, you're going to get crushed. Absolutely. Now, I will say every attorney who, his, who goes to court is a litigator 
has BS their way through something at some point, obviously. Things pop up in court. You got to think on your feet. You may not be prepared. You may not have an answer. You BS your way through it. However, yeah, but that's not showing up unprepared. That's being on your feet and knowing your right. craft. And, you know, that's like the yeah. basketball game's going badly. So I play better defense or I adjust how I'm shooting or I shoot. Like that's an in game adjustment. That's not yeah. showing up unprepared. That's a whole different. You can't but fix you, that. Yeah. It, it, but if you're, if you do that, if that's all you do, if you BS your way through everything because you're, you know, you're putting on a show for your client or you're helping your client put on a show for his adoring public, you know, you're not doing serious attorney work. Your reputation as an attorney is going to take a hit. You know, even just locally, you know, attorneys where you just kind of roll your eyes and say, what a joke, you know, and, and, and uh, granted, there are certain types of clients who love those kinds of attorneys for whatever reason. They really think that, you know, they're going to be a bulldog and get them the result they want, even though when they walk in the court, the judge is already mad <laughs> because they, they know what this attorney is, is like and if they've managed to keep their license. So when you, you have these attorneys who have kind of made a name for themselves, good or bad, being around Trump and unfortunately mostly bad, you got to wonder what is their plan for the rest of their career and i think that, i can't imagine that these people are are thinking that they're going to continue to be successful um respected attorneys after this so all i can imagine is they're hoping for conservative you know far right talk show gigs because they are not <laughs> they're they're going to have a hard time coming back from this when they when they make um, such spectacles of themselves. Yeah, M. Carpenter, our resident senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com, my personal editor who makes me palatable to the reading public and a practicing attorney and a good lawyer. She's just not sure lawyers don't claim that any of this was legal advice. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you until we get you back again, my friend. Sure. Uh, WV Esquire S on, on, uh, ad, on Twitter. X now now known as X. Um, also on Blue Sky, if you're over there, the same name, and you can always find my well, my very occasional these days writing at ordinary-times.com. You need to do more of it. You're good at it. Appreciate your time, my friend. We'll talk soon, ma'am. Thank you. Have a good day. Now, welcome back to Her Tale. Okay, he is the most appeared guest in the history of this program. He just hadn't been on here lately because he's been real busy with real world stuff, both on the planet and outside the planet. But we'll talk about that in a minute. He is Dr. Michael Siegel to you because he's got all those fancy letters after his name. But mostly we just ask him science questions because he can explain them so well that even I can understand them. Welcome back, my friend. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Fantastic. No compl- Hey, who's got it better than us, right? This is fun. Yeah. Um. I know we 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 don't worry about the mule. We just load the cart, and make you answer all this stuff about like political science and COVID and all this stuff. I'm actually going to give you your wheelhouse today. We're actually going to talk about space. Um, this is fun because one of the we've known each other. We've been friends for a couple of years. One of our running jokes is Armageddon, the movie. You know, we go we're going to blow the asteroid up because 
you on social media is always declaring like, no, this asteroid is not coming anywhere near us. This is stupid. This is a dumb clickbait headline. And I just think that documentary of Armageddon was very important to the existence of human <laughs> civilization. And especially now that we don't have Bruce Willis on the line to save us, I don't know what we're going to do. I love Armageddon. It's a great movie. We actually did this, though. We sent a probe. The numbers on this blow my mind, man. Put this. One of the things I always ask you about space is put it in ways we can understand. This thing went three point something something billion miles round trip. They landed on the asteroid. They collected samples, dust, debris. They have to open the seal tight in a controlled environment so they don't know what all's in there, but they know they've got a pretty good sample here. And they brought it back to Earth, and it took seven years. Like, this is really, really cool sci-fi stuff, but we actually did this. Yep, this is the uh, OSIRIS-REx mission that we're talking about. And um, the idea is we want to get samples from an asteroid so we can see what they are composed of. We can do uh, experiments on isotopes and stuff like that and answer some of the most fundamental questions. One of the things we're still trying to figure out is how life started on Earth, how the solar system formed. And this the asteroid, which is called Bennu, is very old, composed of very similar stuff to Earth. And so by getting a sample of it, we hope to answer some of these questions, see what its composition is. Especially we're looking for things like that might be the building blocks of life. There are a lot of theories that maybe what got life going was asteroids and comets hitting the Earth and materials from those beginning, the primordial soup that began life. And so this will help some, answer some of those questions. Now, there was a mission a few years ago, a Japanese mission that returned some samples, uh, but with the quantity of sample that's returned here, uh, like 12 ounces, I think, very, you know, almost a, three quarters of a pound, basically, of material is going to be, it's so much that we can, we will spend decades analyzing this. This will be like the moon rocks. People will spend their entire careers analyzing just a small sample of this. And it's a very impressive mission. What they did... The reason it traveled so far is Bennu passes near the Earth, but what you have to do is sort of sneak up on it in the orbit uh, so that you, get, you can match its orbit and then go into orbit around it. And then they sent the lander down, and it just, you could, there's really cool video of this. It came down with a little probe and it just sort of briefly touched down. Some dust kicked up, it collected that dust, pulled it into the spacecraft, then went back into orbit, then broke orbit with Bennu and re rendezvoused with Earth. And, um, yeah, the capsule landed safely, and they've retrieved it, and they've actually uh, opened it to see what they have, and it's a lot of rock and dust, but uh, it's going to be, uh, you'll be hearing about the results of this for years. Uh, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. I'm going to do all kinds of, I'm just going to warn you now, there's going to be all kinds of references and quotes from Armageddon as we discuss <laughs> this for a lot of but I want to start with one of them because it's one of the funnier things in the movie because it's not specific. And by the way, Billy Bob Thornton as the science NASA guy who's just so crushed by all this and realizes it's really on him to save the world. And he knows he's not up to it is a great character, by the way, for anybody that's ever dealt with government officials stuck in the middle. He really captures that. There's that part of the movie where they just look up and they go, well, how does this happen? How do we get a killer asteroid? And they go, well, we got a million dollar budget that allows us to track about 3% of the sky. And it's like, what the, what is it? Now we know that's not actually true, but there's a nugget of truth in that. We already joked about the headlines on this stuff. A killer asteroid coming close to earth and close to earth is like further than Venus. 
break that down for us though. How much of this stuff are we actually tracking? How much of this is actually getting closed? Cut through that a little bit because there is a nugget of truth in there a little bit. Well, when the movie was made, um, and and for your listeners, I have a YouTube channel where I, I spent I the longest video I've made was breaking down Armageddon and so forth. And the movie Armageddon has what it does is it takes real science and sort of Michael Bayifies it into something crazy and out there and that's not really accurate. So it's it's an interesting movie to talk about. And I agree with you, the cast in the movie is outstanding. It's not like Academy Award outstanding, but they all know what kind of movie they're in and do the appropriate job to, to that movie. But um, at the time that movie was made, we had only documented a small percentage of the asteroids that were out there that could potentially endanger Earth. And it was really after Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 hit Jupiter that Congress decided, all right, we need to make this a priority to map what's out there. And so they have been putting money into that for the last 25 years to try to identify every potential Earth-impacting asteroid. And Bennu is one of those. Um, it will pass, in the late 22nd century, it will pass very close to Earth, and there's a 0.04% chance it would impact. And it would be significant. It's a 500-meter-wide asteroid. So that might be one we want to use a DART-type mission to deflect if it get, comes to that. But we've probably, we have now, I believe, 95% of the near-Earth asteroids tracked that are potentially dangerous. Um, now, that leaves out the elephant in the room, which is comets. Comets come from way outside in the solar system, and we don't know that they're here until they come up upon us. Around the same time the movie was made, a couple of years before, we had comet uh, Hayukitaki, which passed near Earth, and we didn't see it until a few months in advance. So uh, that's something that we do still worry about and not much we can do about it at this point unless we get like really huge infrared telescopes that can scan that the Oort cloud. But um, but yeah, this is, it's uh, in that way, Armageddon is kind of a time capsule of a time when we hadn't seen most of the near earth asteroids. And now we do have a handle on most of them and especially the really dangerous impactors that could cause a cataclysm. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. Okay, part of the Armageddon movie, Billy Bob Thornton's explaining like, okay, well, these cities are exploding and getting raining fire from the heaven. And he just kind of waves like, oh, those are nothing. Those are the size of basketballs and Volkswagens and things like that. You know, the size of Volkswagen took out Paris, that sort of stuff. Again, Bayified is a great term for it. They blew it up a little bit. Give us the size, though. This asteroid that we landed the probe on, how big is it? Give us a kind of a comparison. Don't do that. How many buses will fit into Texas or any of that? Not, you know, how many dog, hot dogs go into Topeka, Kansas, or any of that kind of crazy online stuff? <laughs> Give us the sizes, though, because how big of an Because asteroids and space things, they hit Earth all the time. We just don't talk about them, but they're usually smaller. Something that made like Crater Lake, that's a lot bigger. How big would that would have been compared to what we landed this probe on? Anything that's about, say, 50 to 100 meters in size or bigger is potentially dangerous. Uh, the Tunguska impactor was probably about 50 meters in size, and that hit with the powers of an atomic bomb. If you go on YouTube and type uh, Telyabinsk, if you can spell it, uh, you'll find a video of the meteor that exploded over Chelyabinsk about 15 years ago that was about 50 meters in size and went off with the power of an atomic bomb. Now, it exploded way up in the atmosphere, but it still shattered thousands of windows and caused injuries and so forth. If either of those had hit a city, it would have been like Hiroshima. That's the power of that. With Bennu or something like that, you're talking about 
a 500 meter wide asteroid. So something with a thousand times the mass. Uh, so it could be potential. Now there's a lot of factors in there. The angle and speed it comes in is the most important. Uh, the energy released by the impactor is equal to the mass times the velocity squared. So the, that's what makes asteroids so dangerous. They come in with speeds of tens of kilometers a second. And so that energy that they hit with is extremely powerful, even for a small one. And so when you're talking about something the size of Bennu, that would be a, a regional catastrophe if it were to hit. And so that's the kind of thing we keep an eye on. And we've tracked its orbit pretty precisely, but Bennu is also a very active asteroid. It, it, can, it releases water and stuff into the atmosphere. Into, this, into space. It also can be perturbed by the orbits of other planets. So we can only really give a percentage when we're talking about more than 10, 20 years in the future. Yeah, now the British joining us. The press, we were, you're talking about how I get mad, annoyed at the press. The press and the British press in particular have a tendency to say, this asteroid is closing in on Earth, which always happens. They're on orbits, they pass each other, that happens. Uh, usually if something were dangerous, you'd be hearing a lot more about it. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Herd Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. This brings us to another thing, though, um, where they talk about when they actually get on the asteroid, they're like, okay, so this is basically the most horrible environment you can possibly think of, even though space is trying to kill you every second. They talk about, you know, you landed us on a titanium plate instead of where we thought we could drill through the, you know, the not titanium plate. When they actually start breaking this thing down, 
what are they looking at mineral wise that we would recognize? And I know this is funny because right now Apple's running all these ads about the titanium iPhone and they show the, you know, the little speck in space becoming titanium and landing on earth and magically becoming an Apple iPhone that's running on all major media. Now that's not exactly how that works, right? What are they looking for? What does it tell us? Because as big as space is, there's a lot of elements out there, but we got a pretty good handle on what most of those elements are, right? We just don't know the composition of them, what else is in there, why they stay together through space, that sort of thing. Is that where we're going with some of this? Well, the asteroids are made of the same kind of stuff that Earth was, um, but they are in a very primordial state. They're still in that state that they were four and a half billion years ago. So when we land on the surface of an asteroid, we're seeing the kind of stuff that was in the solar system when Earth was formed. Earth's surface has changed over the last four and a half billion years. We have rain, we have oceans, we have wind, we have organic creatures, we have plants that changes the composition of the surface and so forth. And so uh, we really, uh, with the asteroids, are get a pristine look. Um, some of the stuff that's on there is, is pretty interesting. I mean, there's asteroids with lots of uh, rare earth minerals and gold and stuff like that, that if you were able to mine them and bring them back to earth would be uh, a huge boon to the tech industry and in the movie uh don't look up they talk about this it's a little uh silly but they talk about how there's so many rare earth minerals on there you know everyone would get rich if they were able to capture it yeah dr michael siegel joining us one more thing on this asteroid thing um we talked about the 50 meter asteroid that blew up in the atmosphere. That was a pretty big one. That would have done significant damage and did in some ways. What does it take to actually survive our atmosphere? Because for all the, you know, doomsaying and stuff, our atmosphere works really, really well because we're, you know, the only planet we know of that has intelligent life on it. So it's working pretty good, right? Mm -hmm. You talked about things like angle, you know, velocity. There's a lot to it. If you hit it the wrong velocity, we know from a million sci-fi, you know, you can actually skip off the atmosphere if you come in at the wrong angle. What does it take to survive going through the atmosphere to actually get to the Earth? Because as much as people fear this thing, the atmosphere does a really good job of protecting us, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, against a really big asteroid, it wouldn't be able to do much. But when an asteroid hits the atmosphere, you know, it creates this bright light what we call a meteor and what what's happening there is that it's as it hits it's it's like when spacecraft re enter the atmosphere it compresses the air in front of it which when air is compressed it gets super hot and that what we call a blade heats up the surface of the asteroid and so with someone some with depending on the composition you know some of these are very rocky some of them are more like rock piles like gravel depending on the composition and the structure they might actually reach the atmosphere, reach the surface. We do get asteroids landing every day, or they might blow up. Uh, that's what happened to Chelyabinsk and with Tunguska, that they got so hot, the asteroid actually exploded in midair because of that heat. So it really depends on the composition and the, uh, and the um, structure of it. And that's one of the things that uh, we learned from the DART mission, where we tried to redirect the asteroid. We redirected it more than we expected because of the composition and the structure that when the when the probe hit there was a sort of backsplash that we didn't expect that actually gave it a more of an, a velocity kick than we expected and so one of the things we're trying to figure out is uh, what these the composition and structure of these asteroids is are so we know what to expect 
if one of them becomes dangerous. Michael Siegel joining us. You talked about the DART mission. Put these two things together because when you talked about that composition, that's what they're looking at here. They're going to break down this debris and the dust and whatever else they get in the sample. How much can you extrapolate that out? Because like you said, these asteroids, they've been out there for a long time. They all have different paths, which means they pick up different stuff as they you know, transverse the solar system or wherever they came from. Every one of these are going to be a little bit different. How much can you extrapolate out to the other asteroids you're going to see? Because I got to imagine when you're talking about, you know, to go to the Armageddon thing, if you cordial these things, they're probably all very different once you get into them. So how do you scientifically, you know, you're kind of shotgunning this a little bit. It's like, okay, we think this thing is 40% this, 20% this, whatever. How do you start breaking that down to actually have some kind of a, I don't know, do you have a big flow chart at NASA? And like, here's how we figure out how an asteroid works. What is it? Practically, though, because that's what they're trying to do is we just need some kind of a formula to figure out what these things are as fast as possible, right? We're, we're, that's a very good question. We're, we're pretty limited. Uh, most of the asteroids like Bennu are dark, and so they don't give off a lot of light of their own, which would allow us to learn a lot more about them. We can, with big telescopes, we can get as much reflected light off them as we can, but uh, it, our our ability to understand them is limited. I think if we were talking about something that was potentially dangerous, one of the first things we would do is launch a small probe to get a much better idea of its composition and structure. Is this a big, solid object, or is it a rock pile? That's going to very much change how we approach uh, deflecting a dangerous asteroid. Yeah, Michael Siegel joining us. Okay, another scene in Armageddon that got really ridiculous. They pull the gun out and they fight over the nuclear warhead, right? And uh, Will Patton, who's one of the most underrated character actors we got, just looks at the guy, what are you doing with a gun in space? And deadpans it perfectly. Great line. My producer, TK Turbo, sent me a question for you because I, even though he has your email, he always goes through me. How you doing, TK? Um, this is actually a fun question. He goes, he asked about spin launch and zero gravity and a gun in space and then going back to that. And it goes like this, like what are the expected forces of a projectile will encounter when transitioning from a vacuum at a high, ridiculously high velocity when it encumbers regular atmospheric pressure again? Actually, in a bigger sense, that's kind of what these asteroids are doing when they hit the atmosphere. Would yep. this be not be problematic in some way? So when they pull the gun out in space, even inside the space shuttle or wherever they were, that would still affect ballistics, I would think somewhat. But talk about that, because that actually it sounds a little silly. It was silly in the movie. That actually has got some pretty solid science around it of how things actually work in vacuums and non-vacuums, right? Because that's that's a lot of space dynamics. Um, I'd have to think about that some more, because uh, when you're talking about moving from vacuum to atmosphere, that's when you get that compressed air and that heating and so forth that would cause the you know a bullet like that to, to heat up or tumble and so forth. When you're talking about bullets in space, you're, you know, this is sort of the thing we always talk about in physics. Ignore air when you do this calculation. So it would, it, the spin and the motion would stay the same. A bullet fired in space would theoretically maintain the same velocity and have an infinite range. Uh, the, when, when it transits to air, that's when it's going to start slowing down and the spin is going to change and so forth. So I think the big thing about firing guns in space is you don't want to penetrate the hull and cause the air to get out. That that would be bad. And on an it's asteroid very... like the one in the movie where the gravity is relatively low, the recoil would, would throw you pretty good. 
I, I don't think people understand if you shot a handgun in low gravity, it would probably, you know, it would take you a while to stop. Um, this is funny because the original Jules Verne stuff where they shoot people to the moon in a cannon, which is kind of the reverse of what you're talking about. You're going from, you know, gravity to vacuum. You know, it's a little silly, but he kind of had the right idea in some ways. Yeah, I mean, in theory, you could do that. In practice, the G-forces they experience would be way too high and would kill the people on board. But in you know the lot, what the way you get things into space is you make them go really fast. You know, you have to get up to many kilometers per second to get or to get out of the Earth's atmosphere to get out away from Earth's gravity. And so there are various ways to achieve that. Uh, you could shoot it out of a cannon if you didn't care what happened to the crew. Um, there's also have been proposals in the past for magnetic catapults that would you put them in sort of say in a mountain and accelerate a cargo using magnets to extremely high speed and launch it into space. What we use for uh, rockets turns out to be the most practical where you basically get on top of a mound of explosives and push the astronauts to as much G as is safe and uh, and then they are, are in space. But ultimately, Vern was right that uh, it is about how fast you can get people going. So whatever method you use to get to that speed to escape Earth's gravity is what the velocity you need. And that gives us two more great quotes from Armageddon. The one, Steve Buscemi, who's great in anything he's ever done, is like, we're sitting on top of so many explosives put together by the lowest bidder, which yeah. is accurate and something that's actually been brought up before alan shepard famously they had a technical issue on his mercury launch and he finally just said fix your little problem and light this candle one of the great astronaut stories of all time after waiting around for four hours and then the other one of the the one shuttle commander who ended up dying later spoiler alert if you haven't seen a 25 year old movie by this point um he says this is a kick-ass ride as they're going up on the rocket both of those quotes are actually pretty accurate and pretty true yeah. Um, let's see. With the with the ride, you have to. Uh, one of the best p communicators on that subject is Chris Hatfield, the Canadian astronaut who's been up in space many times, and talks about how you get very focused. It's very intense, and then once you get into space, it's like you're floating, and that that transition from being so focused and one of the most intense moments of your life to suddenly, oh wow, I'm in space. And uh, Shatner also talked a little bit about that with his trip into space. But uh, the Shepard story, and we do try to do a lot of quality control. And considering how complex the early space missions were, uh, that we only had one real failure with Apollo 13 is pretty remarkable. Shepard's story is actually interesting because he was waiting in the capsule so long, uh, his bladder was full. And uh, they actually had to turn off the electronics so he could uh, relieve himself and then wait for things to dry out and then turn everything back on and, and launch him. Yeah, they don't put that one in the movie though but uh they put uh, it in the right stuff though 
Yeah, they did. They did. Right Stuff is such a good movie. Not the remake that was eh, the original Right Stuff. Fantastic movie. All right. Uh, we were talking about uh, on Twitter today, best ensemble casts. That's an amazing ensemble that's, cast for Right Stuff. That's up there. Um, I love the Right Stuff. They got Jaeger Wright, who's, of course, one of my childhood heroes. Like ha- When he throws a fit where he basically takes an airplane so high it implodes just to throw a fit and make a point is just one of the great. And it actually happened. Yeah, like it's, just, it's just one of the like that 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 couldn't have really happened. It, no, that really happened, just to prove a point. Like, what in the world? And then Doctor, that great line is that a man? You're dang right, it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Doctor Michael Siegel. Uh, okay, you are a man of letters. You are an academic. You walk among the groves of academe. You are a scientist par excellence. You're one of those real smart people on the planet. When's the last time you thought of the Roman Empire? Uh, probably this morning because I was playing Rome Total War. Oh, come on. <laughs> I'm actually reading um, Mary Beard's SPQR right now. It was kind of ironic. that So if you, for those of you who are not on social media, last week someone asked, I just read that men think about the Roman Empire about once a week. Is that true? And a bunch of men chimed in, yes. <laughs> and uh, just by coincidence, I happened to be reading SPQR, which is uh, Mary Beard's history kind of of both the history of Rome and the history of the history of Rome. And uh, I was like, yeah, <laughs> it's something I think about fairly often. So we were we were talking about why that is, why people are so fascinated with Rome. And uh, I came up with a few reasons, and this is just me as an amateur, not as an actual historian, historian. But um, one, Rome is extremely well documented. There are contemporary historians and writers whose works are preserved. They were preserved by medieval monks. So we have a firsthand or a secondhand record of of what happened. Like Cicero, we have hundreds of his letters about what was going on with his life. When he lived in very interesting times when they were transitioning from a republic to an empire. Uh, And the second is I think it's very, there are a lot of similarities between the Roman Empire and the United States. You know, the you know, I've referred to the last 70 years as kind of the lap, the Pax Americana since the end of World War II. It's been one of those peaceful eras in history. And I think that the United States leadership on the international stage and our creation of alliances, especially the nuclear era, is, is the reason for that. And I also think in a somewhat mythologized way for men specifically that Rome represents a kind of healthy masculinity, if you will. You know, the, the idea of strength and honor and service and serving something greater than yourself. That's a little bit mythologized over the millennia, but I think that also is something that uh, creates a fascination with people, at least, especially, at least with me, it does. And the thing about it is, because Rome had all kinds of problems, like, you know, enslavement and murder and corruption. And if you've watched anything about Rome, you know all the bad parts too. You know what it really is and why it's in our consciousness? You just touched on it. And I'm an amateur historian. If you want a professional historian, you got the wrong Donaldson. That's my father. You're going to have to get him for this because he actually taught history and had the degrees in it and all that fun stuff. The thing about Rome, though, is it's it's not only was an important worldwide empire, most of the known world at the time. They were the first where, you know, it was documented. We still speak and understand and write in Latin. Yeah. So we so it was well it was just the perfect storm of expanding technology where you had the worldwide empire you had trade so the rest of the world was very aware of Rome you know North Africa in what is now called England the Far East the subcontinent India like everybody knew about Rome so all these other countries were also writing about them 
but they actually had, you know, basically a worldwide monetary system, a worldwide language. If you were a citizen of Rome, you understood that you have major religions like Christianity that came to prominence through the Roman Empire and it became part of that. You know, I'm not saying mythology to denigrate it. I'm just saying part of the Christian story yep. comes from that. And so does the Muslim story. And so does the Jewish story for your folks. You know, that the Roman Empire is a big deal to the Jewish people. You have all these other things that revolve around the Roman Empire that makes it an important thing. And then it just hit the right point in history where you have all the scribes. You have a language that has endured to where we actually understand it. We don't need a Rosetta Stone for it. They took a lot of what the Greeks were already doing and amalgamated it into that. So it was like a remix and a continuation that built onto it. There was just a lot of factors into it that make it a fascinating period of time. Yeah. And you hit you touched on this, that the idea of Romans wasn't just people who lived in Italy. They would give citizenship to peoples that they had assimilated, peoples they had conquered and so forth, that people all over the empire were citizens of Rome. They had classes of citizenship, this really amazingly complicated citizenship system, but they were very much a thing of, we'll make other people Romans, which was very different from the Greeks. The Greeks were very restrictive in who could be a citizen, but the Romans were like, hey, you know, you obey our laws and send us tribute, you're Roman, it's fine. It's all fun and games till the Gauls show up to sack Rome and then things get <laughs> real, but that's another topic. For another day, our good friend, Dr. Michael Siegel. Uh, love talking to you. This space stuff is really cool. I'm glad we actually get to talk about just the space stuff and not some political something. We'll do that the next time you come on. Let folks know how they can keep up with you, what you've got going on, because you've actually been tinkering with the spacecraft that you have to mind and babysit. Had a little trouble with that, and you got it fixed out. Let folks know how they can follow you, keep up with you until we get you back on the well, program. Well, it's not again, quite my fixed out. Uh, well, we, we have a, a few issues with guidance that we're working on. Um, so the spacecraft's healthy, and we're getting good data, but it, we need to to fix that problem. So there's a updates on the Goddard website for that. But um, uh, where you can find me, Ordinary Times is probably the best place. That's where I do most of my writing. Um, if you just go to YouTube and type in Michael Siegel Astronomy, you'll find my YouTube channel where I talk a lot about movies, including my big Armageddon video. Uh, and uh, I have a future video coming up on the Ahsoka show and on the Apollo 13. And uh, yeah, that's where you'll, you'll find me. It's a great YouTube channel. I've actually got to be on it once. I killed all his ratings, so he hadn't had me back yet. But the Oppenheimer one did really well. Um, but no, great YouTube channel. We're going to link to it, hertel.substack.com on all the show notes. Make sure you get all that. My friend, so great to catch up with you. So great to talk science because it really is an amazing edge. We didn't even talk about your favorite telescope and some of the stuff it's doing. It's just it's like every day something's coming out of the James yep, Webb. There's an image behind me from a, a yep. Herbert Caro object that JVDC just took. So it's, I thought uh, it was a Journey album cover, but I'm glad you cleared that up because it looks amazing. <laughs> uh, we, you'll see that on the video when the good talks comes out. Michael Siegel, thank you, sir. Appreciate your time. Oh, glad to be on. Yes, sir. Welcome back to Hertel. Let's end on a quick good note. Bridge Day is coming up in a couple of weeks. Bridge Day is just 
something that's amazing. Uh, one day a year in October, usually, uh, not only can you go to the National Park New River Gorge in West Virginia and see just some of the best foliage and leaves changing you've ever seen in your life in the 800 feet deep canyon and all that, the whitewater, golly season's going just up, you know, next river up. But also, they have bridge day where one day a year they let people base jump and rappel off the bridge. It's just amazing people. There'll be hundreds of thousands of people there. It's the largest one day festival in the entire state of West Virginia. Great for the uh, economy of the area. Really cool event. Should go on your bucket list. You can watch people base jump and parachute off the New River Gorge. They allow it one day a year. The official uh, bridge shirt supplier, this is from the Fayette Tribune, where I get to write a column from time to time for. I try to support my local newspaper a little bit. Mountain Mindful is the Bridge Day shirt supplier. They're going to do all the swag, you know, when you get the souvenir shirts and whatever. Why is that a big deal and why is that in the good portion of our program? Well, Mountain Mindful is an interesting company. And what they do is their employees, they do screen printing and furniture and all kinds of stuff, but it's a social enterprise headquartered in Southern West Virginia. They hire people who face barriers to employment, such as substance use disorder or former coal economy workers. I'm reading from their website here. We will link to them. Both beautiful and resilient, our creations help you define the kind of authentic, mindful life you seek to live and missed the chaos of this world. Staying true to our environmental values, we try to model what the our region, Mountain Mindful, continues to use this big picture vision by hiring local people who make adorable and sustainable products primarily made from organic, reclaimed, and recycled materials here. They hire workers that have trouble getting employment other places. Either they're, you know, pigeonholed in their vocational stuff, but they'll also hire people that have had substance abuse issue or problems with law enforcement. This is an epidemic in West Virginia between the opioid crisis and the overall economy. You need stuff like this. People that can't fit naturally into some more, let's say, corporate level work, they're giving them work and a good product. So for them to get the merchandising swag for the bridge day, that's a big deal for them. We're going to link to their website. You can order stuff from them, everything from customized stuff to pre-prints to furniture to all sorts of stuff. That link will be on Substack Notes. Check them out cool company, good way to support local folks. And if you've never been to Bridge Day, go ahead and make your plans now. Make sure you take one of them shuttle buses from the parking lots. Traffic does get a mic crazy up there because they shut down half of the four lanes across the bridge and make it pedestrian. Really interesting event, really unique. Take time to go. That'll do it for Hertel. Make sure you're subscribing, liking, following, and commenting on whatever platform you're listening to. That lets the platform know we're worth promoting. Let's other listeners know we're worth checking out. It will always only cost you a click to get Herd Tell. Make sure you're subscribed on the Substack, substack.herdtell.com. That gets you to everything we do right into your inbox. Don't have to go hunting for it. Also, if you want to use two clicks, since it only costs you one click to listen, use a click to share us on your social media. We don't advertise outside of our own social media accounts. We don't pay for it. If you could share the word that our programs were checking out, we'd sure appreciate it. So wherever you are across the street or around the world, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you are well fed, and we will talk to you again real, real soon for more Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. So much lemon.